0: Welcome to the Lead Defend Podcast, a show designed to help you grow in faith and leadership as you navigate the stages of young adulthood. We address important faith topics and provide practical life tips, helping you build up your faith as you engage a changing culture. Now, here are your hosts.
1: Hey, this is Ryan. I'm here with Brock, and we have Dr. Matz on with us. Dr. Matts, we're we so excited to be here at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Would you tell us a little bit about where we actually are?
0: Sure. We are so glad that you've joined us here at Midwestern. Midwestern exists for the church and for the kingdom, located right here in Kansas City, Missouri. We are one of the six Southern Baptist seminaries, and we are just so, so grateful to be able to serve the churches. Of, of the Southern Baptist Convention and serve churches there in Arkansas and provide resources like what we're getting ready to walk through here. Midwestern uh, host and is home to the Charles Spurgeon uh, Library here. We own his entire uh, personal library wow. and so you can come here and learn about him. Great British Baptist preacher, as well as learn from a host of other scholars and others here at Midwestern. You know what I think really defines Midwestern and helps it to set apart in a lot of ways, and there's lots of great schools out there, of course, but what really is wonderful about our school, and I know Brock has experienced here as well, is just the relationships you can foster Mm -hmm. uh, through the gospel here on a campus like this one. Through professors, through time with classmates, how the Lord uses a school like this to refine students and refine individuals in their walk for the Lord in the service of his churches.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And so we're actually right here in the Spurgeon Library. It's exciting, beautiful place. Even if you're not coming to Midwestern necessarily, stop by and visit. They would love to host you. Well, Brock, tell us a little bit about your Midwestern experience and then let's jump right in.
2: Yeah, Dr. Matts, he, he kind of showed my cards. head. I have a, I have some skin in this game. I loved my experience here at Midwestern. I was able to graduate from an with an MDiv here and actually got to have Dr. Matts for Intro to Apologetics, which was an interesting class for a lot of reasons and it was a, a phenomenal time about learning with him and and he actually has a, a PhD from Liberty did a uh, a minor in apologetics studied with Gary Habermas which if you're familiar with that name he is uh, high up there with evidential apologetics and so today we're going to get to talk to Dr. Matz about um, some aspects of evidential apologetics and so let's just start with that question um, if you were telling someone who didn't really have have any frame of reference for that phrase what exactly is evidential apologetics sure
0: thanks for the question Brock the evidential apologetics is this idea that there are good evidences for the Christian faith. You know sometimes you'll hear people say things like there's no reason to be a Christian. There's no evidence to support it. What facts do you have? Evidential apologetics is that branch of apologetics which is the defense of the faith which seeks to say hey there are good reasons, there are facts, there are evidences for Christianity. The way this normally works is it just looks at the facts of history and says, look, here is what happened in history, what best explains it. Mm-hmm. So normally this works in uh, on a few lines. One is fulfilled prophecy. Hey, if something happened and it was said it would happen and it was talked about beforehand, well, that's not how things normally work. Yeah. So we, I can't say, I know that such and such a thing is gonna happen at such and such a time in such and such a way, and then it actually happened And you'd go, well, how did you know that? How is that possible? So fulfilled prophecy is one. Another way of supporting evidential apologetics is the miraculous, the existence of events that are above and beyond the normal laws of nature. In order for nature to be... Um, kind of uh, worked outside upon or worked upon from without there has to be something happening from outside nature so the existence of these miraculous events and the evidence for those and then the third uh, branch here in the one I think we're going to spend the most time on this morning which Gary Habermas has really pioneered and led in is what is known as the minimal facts for the existence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ you know as you study secular scholars, and you begin to look at those guys, there are a series of facts that everybody agrees upon. They may not give you that the resurrection happened, that it actually existed, but they will give you, these are some things that we just see happening in history and there's very little dispute over them. And so as a result, the question then comes, how do you explain these minimal facts? And these minimal facts provide an evidential argument For the existence of and for the truthfulness of Christianity.
1: Yeah. So, so when you're talking about this evidential apologetics, how does this differ from the way some other folks may approach apologetics?
0: Sure. There's there's a lot of or there's four major schools I would suggest of apologetics. Uh, Those would be classical apologetics, and both classical and evidential would be defined as positive forms of apologetics. That is, they are working to make a positive case. For Christianity. The way classical apologetics does this is at first it's a two-step method. It makes some arguments for the existence of God. That would be like the the cosmological argument or the Kalam version of the cosmos, cosmological argument. So famously uh, most recently advanced by William Lane Craig or the ontological argument or the teleological argument or the moral argument. All arguments that we can see that point us to the existence of God. Then it makes a move from that saying hey here is God who exists to them making an argument for Christianity, and normally then to do that it uses some form of evidential apologetics. Mm -hmm. Evidential apologetics is distinguished from that as opposed to being a two-step method, it's a one-step method. By that, what is is meant is that the evidences for Christianity give you the existence of God within them. So if Jesus rose from the dead, there has to be someone acting outside the laws of nature, Mm -hmm. outside our seen, known, studyable universe because we all know dead people don't rise,
2: right? Like, that's just... There's got to be something behind
0: that. Yeah, there's got to be something behind that. So you get God without having to... So so the, an evidentialist will normally say, you know, this is just a cleaner, quicker argument. Yeah. In addition to that... Um,
1: and so it's really getting to the point of truth in the quickest possible manner. Yes.
0: Yeah. So then in addition to that, two other methods I'll just mention briefly, and these would both be considered uh, negative forms of apologetics. That is, they're not trying to uh, build an argument positively for Christianity, at least not directly. Rather, they're trying to show how all other forms of thought are flawed. Mm. And so as a result, they leave you with Christianity. One would be reformed epistemology, which is argued most notably in recent years by Alvin Planica, a famous professor at Notre Dame. And the way this argument works is it just says that there are good reasons, uh, just internally, just like we have sense functions that the belief in God is basically a sensory function and we can just yeah. know that's true that uh, that the heavens declare the glory of God and so we just have this innate knowledge of God and that that is a reasonable thing to have and then as well with this most famously pioneered by Cornelius Van Til would be a presuppositional form of of apologetics which seeks to show how each system of non-Christian thought is ultimately um, self-referentially incoherent that under their own weight they all fail and so, so that naturalism on its own has to assume a logical universe but on its own, there's no reason to assume a logical universe. Everything is just random chance. And so why can naturalism exist? It can't because it's having to sneak in an assumption about who God is and what he's like. So these are what I would be seen as the four main branches, I would suggest, of apologetics. And then folks tend to often try to work these in together. Sometimes they're seen as mutually exclusive. Others will seek to combine them.
1: Yeah, and apologetics really exists to give a defense for the faith. Right. And and so, you're really giving a defense for some of those common arguments that people use to deny the resurrection of Jesus. Right. Would you just really quickly run us through some of those common arguments?
0: Sure, so so actually I'm, I, I would suggest maybe we back it up a step and okay. let's say before we get to those com- common arguments against, Um, I think it's helpful to say why would people even want to make an argument against the resurrection? It's a good word. Right? And and so as you're thinking about why would somebody want to make an argument against the resurrection, well, there's something they're needing to argue against. And so there's these facts that exist, right, that, that they're trying to work through. So one argument might be, and we'll get to the facts in just a second, well, Jesus didn't really die. When he was up there on the cross, he just passed out. And then uh, he got better.
1: Yeah, and we've all seen the way some teenagers <laughs> sleep. So we know they yeah. can pass out for days.
0: Yeah, they can pass out for days. So you're saying
1: Jesus didn't do that?
0: Jesus didn't do that. So okay. was
1: this wasn't a, a post-final, you know, hibernation after no, nine all night. No, or not, after some of these students no. remember prom, after up all night for prom oh, and after oh, yeah. prom, like they crash for two days.
0: Yes, so. yeah. So is this what's going on? No, that doesn't that doesn't fit the facts we have. Another one would be, and this one's kind of random because there's really no evidence for it but another would be um, that uh, Jesus had a secret twin Right? Like that's yeah. one. And so it wasn't, Jesus really died, but wasn't there like a movie on this? Was it like The yeah. Illusionist or The Prestige? One of those magic movies a few years ago. Uh, but but uh, it's a good movie too. Uh, but I can't remember the name. Oh, uh, yes.
1: And, and and the twin basically hit out for. Yes, forever, he hit out. Yes, yeah, I remember that. Yes,
0: and then one would appear. And, and so it's a great movie. It was really a lot of fun. Uh, and so that's what Jesus was, right? He had this secret twin, and the secret twin came back but there's evidences that just make that totally nonsense. Mm. Um, another, another one would be that uh, there was mass hallucination, that folks just hallucinated these resurrection appearances. And, uh, and so there's, there's evidences that don't work there as well. And so those, those are common objections, common ideas that are, are put up as to what happened, that just once you get into to studying the history of the events and those facts that nobody really argues about, yep. that you can be a militant atheist who's looked into this and you go, well, yeah, that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, that That once you begin to stitch these minimal facts together, the most reasonable, the most logical explanation. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
2: Well let's talk about that for a second. You say that there's the minimal
1: facts
0: mm-hmm. that, that
2: point to the, the validity of the resurrection. What are these minimal facts? Sure. Like I,
1: you learned about all this in your apologetics class. Listen, so. I, I want to let the experts Oh talk okay, about
2: it. okay. <laughs> I, I didn't cram last night. Okay.
0: <laughs> so so probably the first one that just about everybody agrees about is Jesus died, and he died via crucifixion right so that's the first one he died we know what crucifixion is we've found um, the bodies of people who've been crucified and we've seen how it worked and And so we know that Jesus died there's good testimony to the fact both uh, in in the Bible and elsewhere that he died and he died via crucifixion the second was that he was buried right that he was buried so that he was placed in a tomb and he was buried. A third was that the disciples despaired. They grieved. They, were, mm. uh, they, they ran away. They gave up, right? They just... They despaired. Another one, and this one isn't quite as widely held, only about 60% of scholars who would come from a very skeptical view of the Bible, they don't think the Bible is true. And that's probably an important thing to emphasize here with this. These are people who've looked into the Bible and who walk away from it and don't have the same assumption I would about the Bible, which is that the Bible is completely true, that it's always God. They, They don't think that. These are folks who are skeptics, but recognize, hey, the Bible's an old book, Mm -hmm. and as an old book, as an old document like any other, we should Uh, study it and we should subject it to rigorous criticism and I would say yeah that's true I just come to different conclusions where that leads but they're gonna tear out large portions of the Bible these would be people like those that would be involved in something like the Jesus seminar which goes through the gospel accounts and says large portions of it are false actually went through and said only 5% of the gospel accounts are clearly the words of Jesus that claim to be Uh, so a very skeptical group of people but even even in their skepticism they're gonna say yep Jesus died via crucifixion yep he was buried about 60% of them will say yeah there was an empty tomb that was found not all of them will but about 60% will land there um, and then then they'll say in addition to that uh, that the disciples believed they experienced a resurrection encounter with Jesus. Yeah. right? That That isn't necessarily that they did. And when
1: you say disciples, you're not just talking about 12. right? You're talking about masses.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are. We are. So the 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 reference where Paul says, I pass on to you that which I also received, mm-hmm. uh, that he appeared. And then you've got the list there. And you've even got an account that 500 people he appeared to at one time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he says you can go and talk to them. And, and so forth, so that that there was um, a, a believing they had seen the risen Jesus. Again, notice here, this isn't saying the resurrection actually happened. These are just facts. There's a bunch of disciples who went around and they believed that. another one that jesus that, that the disciples were transformed, and they were willing to die for wow. what they believed, right? So you had this group, they went from despair. And then all of a sudden they're willing to die for what they believed. And then there's the preaching that occurs in Jerusalem shortly after the events of the claimed resurrection. Just a historical fact. You have the church that suddenly appears. You have all these people who are suddenly going around within just a few years of the event saying something has happened. We believe he rose from the dead. How do you explain the appearance of the church? You have the fact that they worship on Sundays. There wasn't Sunday worship prior to this. Why is there Sunday worship that all of a sudden appears? Something changed. Yeah. And then you've got two figures that are notable here, being Paul and James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, thought his brother was a lunatic. We have those accounts in Scripture. Paul's going around, and he's breathing death. He's wanting to kill Christians. And in both cases, in both cases, there's this dramatic reversal. And so these are just a series of minimal facts that do exist that there's really not much dispute over that would all point to the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
2: Right. So you take these and, and you begin to be, build a case. Mm-hmm. Like, so for the, the mass numbers of disciples who believe that they saw Jesus, well, there's no mass hallucinations of that type that, that have been shown in the past. You take, like you were just talking about, Paul and James. Like what could have caused them to go from such a such a position of opposition towards the church to now they're all of a sudden building the church? And so so are there any other ways you can take those minimal facts and mm-hmm. begin to
1: point to uh, the the case for the resurrection? Well, even before that, I, I want to talk about those minimal facts because a lot of folks would say to us, "Sure, you have those minimal facts, but you're drawing your." facts quote unquote from the bible mm-hmm. so where are the other places that we can point to that say sure. these are actually historical events?
0: Sure, so like the the birth of the church, yes that's a, accounted in the bible but you've got secular historians in the first and second century who are saying things like there's a dispute that among, um, arose among the Jews over Christus mm-hmm. and that's an account that, that comes out of Rome in in the 60s AD so 30 years afterwards that's just right there yeah. you you've got the oppression of the christians that they are you've got all these things that are happening in history and then with that as well and i think this is this is important to mention. You've got kind of these tools that historians use to, to try to get back at what actually happened. Because, I mean, we know, we read like secular histories or, or things from that time, and oftentimes they'll be very much embellished. Yeah. Right? Like you, you read the account of some of the Greek histories of uh, of the wars they would fought. My and football history in high school is greatly
1: <laughs> embellished every time I
0: tell <laughs> yeah, it. Oh, so, yes. <laughs> So So you have these sort of things that that are out there sure. and and you look at them and uh, and you go but what is what are the tools historians use to get back at things and so I'll just give an example of one here. If something is an embarrassing admission, mm. it's most likely true because you're not going to put up as you just said. The uh, the the bad details, right? Shoot. Right. You're not going to mention, man. I was a superstar. I was running all over the field. I caught everything that was ever thrown at me. But there was that one time I, I dropped the pass. Oh, yeah. there are a
1: lot
2: of those. Uh-huh. I hope nobody looks at my basketball stats. I'm max preps.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you have basketball stats. Okay. On an prep still. Yeah, yeah. All right, Brock yeah, would not begin find it, look it up, <laughs> tweet it, do it.
0: So, so you're not going to talk about what's embarrassing. Sure. Right? Like, that's just not what we do. We don't even do it now. And so back then, when histories tend to be more embellished, or so that's the claim, mm-hmm. right, you're certainly not going to talk about it. But you have a series of really embarrassing admissions. Wow. So here would be one. Uh, the, now, the... We obviously don't agree with this, but there, there was a mindset in that era that the testimony of women was not as valid as the testimony of men, that it took in court two women for their testimony to be equivalent to the testimony of one man. Women were seen as, as more unreliable. In the gospel accounts, you have these people who are claiming to have seen the resurrected Jesus, and who are the very first ones to make the claim? Mm-hmm. It's women. That doesn't help your argument. Sure. But the only reason that would be there is because that was what was actually being claimed. Yeah. And so that's embarrassing. You don't want to put that out there. Right? Here's another one. Jesus' brother thought he's a lunatic. Mm. Why on earth would you tell anybody Uh, that?
1: 100%. Right?
0: I mean, like, why would you say that? That's like, well, his own brother thought he was a lunatic. Why? Because it actually happened. Mm. So these embarrassing admissions, these embarrassing admissions contribute to some evidence that there is something historical there.
1: And it also lends itself to Brock's question that you can point to the resurrection from those yes. historicities, really.
0: yeah. Yeah, and so and that's that's exactly right. So what do you do with these facts? How do you explain them? And I already alluded to a few attempts to explain them. One is uh, that Jesus swooned that he passed out. Well, remember the very first fact we talked about. Jesus died via crucifixion. We know how people die via crucifixion, right? They are uh, asphyxiated, ultimately, right? They are they are. Put to, to death, they can't breathe. When someone dies via asphyxiation or, or via crucifixion, with their hands over their head, the nail through it, their hands through their feet, trying to push up constantly, get air, slowly bleeding out from the holes. We know uh, as well, if we would accept this as well, though it's not part of the minimal facts here, that he was potentially beaten beforehand. Uh, but but he is he is dying a brutal death. But let's say for a second, he did actually swoon, right? That the Roman centurion who checked there at the side as part of the crucifixion or those who were there, they knew how people died. Romans did. It was a cruel, they they could tell. But let's just say for a second, let's entertain, he passed out. He is, has the fire beat out of him, Mm. basically, right? And he... Uh, is put in the tomb and three days later somehow some way, he's able to get up a little right so he is because of the nature of crucifixion if you were to look at him and you were to encounter him your reaction would not be Oh, my, you've risen from the dead. Look at this miracle God has gonna done. Worship you. i you. Mean, you're going to be, Oh, my, Jesus, come lay down. We'll get you some food. Yeah. You feel really... Uh, what, t- the- what happened to that guy? <laughs> it's going to be, What happened to him?
2: Mm.
0: Right? They, they messed up. They didn't crucify him all the way. But three days later, you're not going to be going around and saying, Wow, look at what God has done. You're not going to be starting a church. You're not going to be willing to be transformed to die. Sure. Right? like why would you die for that? Well, there's clearly a natural explanation of what's happened here. This does not explain the minimal facts. It doesn't explain what happened to James. It doesn't explain what happened to Paul. It's, it's a, a useless sort of event. Maybe it's the mass hallucination one, right? Like there's another one. They just had a mass hallucination to 500 people at once. Well, there's no documented mass hallucinations in all of history. Mm. There's just not. There's no evidence of it. 500 people, now of course like you get some folks on drugs, they'll all be hallucinating maybe on whatever drugs they're see on, the same thing. Huh? but they don't see the same thing. They all see their own weird, wild, out there sort of things. And, and so that, that theory doesn't hold water either. Um, another one, uh, the, the disciples stole the body. Well, remember what I said about the folks who were there. Who's the very first person, one of the very first people to see, see him? It's his mom. Mm-hmm. Or not the disciples stole the body. Well, I'll come back to that one. I meant the twin theory or a fraud or an imposter. Sure. Let me do that one for just a second. One of the very first people to see him is his mom. Another one is his brother, right? Who's going to yeah. know better than anyone? It's his mom. It's his brother. They're going to be able to tell the difference mm-hmm. there that doesn't work disciples disciples stole the body Well, let's say the disciples stole the body why are they willing to die why are they willing to go from being cowards sniveling another embarrassing yep. mission by the way denying three, uh, times. denying three times to being willing to die for it how does that explain James who's not one of the disciples at that point his brother how does that explain Paul it doesn't yep. it doesn't so so these theories just don't, don't hold water. They don't, don't work well.
2: Yeah. So if you were going to take those and you're in a conversation with someone, you're, you're, you're out on the street. We know that that you've done a lot of work in Mm -hmm. evangelism. You've been on an SBC task force for evangelism. Um, you're in a conversation. How do these facts maybe play into that conversation? How do you use these minimal facts to, to show someone, um, So someone, Jesus.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So I think apologetics often functions in a pre-evangelistic way. And I think the minimal facts argument's a great way to do that. And so here's, here's how I would normally do it with someone who's a little more skeptical on the truth of Christianity. I would say something like this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best documented event in all of antiquity. He, the resurrection of Jesus is better documented than the existence of Alexander the Great, than the existence of Julius Caesar, than, wow. the, the, than just about anything in, in the history of the ancient world. And, and we know this because like the documents themselves are closer to the actual events. Mm-hmm. Than any other, and then nobody's
1: disputing that those guys existed. And no. really,
0: no. There's a few who try to, to dispute that Jesus exists. There's a few who try to, but but even if you try to dispute Jesus exists, nobody, for example, d- disputes that Paul existed yeah. and that Paul put these things together. And so you're having to make an argument for the greatest fraud of all time, and a fraud that makes no sense. Sure. Because remember these remarkable transformations that people encounter. When um, when you are committing a fraud, you're going to know I'm committing a fraud. If you do, in this case, right? They're saying, I experienced, I met the resurrected Jesus. Well, either you did or you didn't. That's a yes or no sort of thing. So people will die for a lie, of course, if they don't know it's a lie. But mm-hmm. these people would know yeah. they're lying. And so they go from being a bunch of sniveling cowards to being willing to die. And what explains wow. that? And so you just begin to unpack these facts. Even people who don't view the Gospels as reliable say, hey, Jesus died on the cross. We know that's true. We we know that there's these remarkable transformations. We know that these things are embarrassing. And so there's all this evidence for the resurrection having taken place. Now, how do you know anyone who's died? I'll normally just ask a question yeah. like that. Uh, what happened three days after they died?
1: They stayed dead. Well, a funeral actually. Yeah, there was
0: a funeral. <laughs> did they? Did they get up? Did no. they come? Did they? Okay. So, have you ever known anyone who's died who came back after three days? No. Okay. So, for that to happen, that that doesn't work naturally, does it?
1: No, not at
0: all. Yeah, and so so you can see where this is going. There's an event that happened. Someone had to act. Act outside of nature to bring this about. Someone who is outside of nature, stronger than nature, above nature, is calling our attention to this event in history. Wow. And so, as that one who is calling our attention to this event in history does that, I think that's something worth studying. Mm-hmm. I think that's something worth understanding. I think there, that points us to the fact that there is a God and that he wants us to know him. Yeah. He wants us to see what he's doing. And he is calling out to us to to come to know him. And we see that in this person, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so so, given there is all this historical evidence, I would say you need to consider the claims of Jesus. May I tell you about a few of those? Yeah. To wow. seven, then just walk it sounds like you're
2: presenting Jesus. You're, you're presenting who he was and the, the 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 resurrection, and saying if if these at least minimal facts are true, you you have to do something with it. Yes, you have to explain something with it. We know that we can't argue someone into the kingdom of god that's right of the holy spirit we know that that we're supposed to always be ready to give a defense and so it's giving that defense with gentleness and respect and, and trying to
1: show that person their opportunity to respond to it in some way
0: that's exactly right
1: well yes. dr mats thank you so much for enabling us to just steal some of your time hosting us here at midwestern baptist theological seminary we are so excited that you would come and listen with us uh, you can find us at LeadDefend. Lead and the conference is coming soon beginning it's be of great. 2022 it's gonna be awesome Hey, thank you again. Until next time, this has been Lead Defend.
0: That's it for this episode of Lead Defend. To hear more episodes from the Lead Defend crew, visit absc.org slash podcasts. If you liked what you heard, rate and review us on your favorite podcast listening site. Want to learn more information about the next Lead Defend conference? Visit leaddefend.org.